You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we take a look at the life of Bond's creator, Ian Fleming, and look at a musical that's based on another one of Fleming's works. It's 1968's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Everybody, welcome uh, to yet another edition of the Bondzilla podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Will, and uh, we're back onto our Bond and now Bond-related, Bond-adjacent uh, episodes, um, where we talk about things that uh, have some sort of connection to uh, James Bond in one way or another. Uh, so, our episode today, we're continuing on our streak of children's. Uh, fantasy films. Yes. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang yes. from 1968, which what? is not directed by Guy Hamilton. So, okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm just going to lean back and I'm going to have you explain I deserve, this I deserve one. everything about this one. Yeah. So, explain yourself. So, for whatever reason, I had just believed that Guy Hamilton directed Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to the point where. This is not something that was like recent, like oh, it was just a mistake. I had I had teased this all the way back when we first talked about guy. Yes. In uh in a Goldeneye, we talked about like the the magic card is flying around and everything like that. Like I I had believed this for a solid like two years at this point, and I was just looking up stuff about the movie, and I was just like he wasn't listed as director. And I was like, oh. I don't know how you manage this one. I do not because know. You, what made you think that he did? So he was a, I, he definitely was considered for the movie, right. which is what I wanted to talk about. But he was considered for it. And for whatever reason, I must have just said, oh, he, was, he did it. Yeah. Like, I didn't look into it more. I, I completely take like you know full responsibility yeah. for my actions here. It's not yeah. like I'm trying to defend myself. This, I don't know how this happened. I don't know how I let it happen for so long. But it happened. It happened, guys. Okay. Uh, this movie is directed by Ken Hughes, who does have a Bond connection, which yes. I'll talk about in the production. But There's a couple Bond connections in, in this yes. movie. Uh, and it's a big reason why we're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the main reason we are talking about it is obviously uh, not because we like to uh, switch things up and talk about uh, a whimsical children's uh, piece of filmmaking, but more so because it uh, derives right from the brain that it also gave birth to the international man of mystery himself. Yes. Uh, this is an Ian Fleming This is a Ian creation. Fleming work. Uh, yeah. So Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was originally an Ian Fleming novel. And Ian Fleming, of course, the author of the Bond books, uh, the creator of James Bond. And I thought it would be fun to do a little dive into, not a deep dive necessarily, but a deep dive. No, that's, 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 for, that's the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but a dive into the life of Ian Fleming mm-hmm. uh, and to talk about kind of where he came from, what his life was like, and where kind of the original inspiration for Bond came from, uh, as well as, uh, of course, some production about yeah. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Well, because we're going to talk about like him as the man and the creator, and then yes. uh, we're going to uh, see how that has split out into these two radically uh, different approaches. Ian Lancaster Fleming. Mm-hmm. Uh, was born in May 28, 1908, 
uh, to a wealthy family. Uh, he was the uh, f- one of four sons mm-hmm. of a, a wealthy bit- British investment banker, uh, Robert Fleming, uh, who would eventually uh, run for and uh, get a seat in, in uh, English Parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we came from success. Uh, he lived in a big house and, and generally had a, a decent time uh, growing up uh, very close to both his mother and his father, as well as his four siblings. Um, his father did die early on in his life in uh, World War I. Mm-hmm. And his father left Parliament to fight in World War I uh, and, and died during the war, uh, in which point uh, the mother took over the family. And the mother made a big point of like how virtuous and and how um, heroic the father figure was, how Robert, how how big of a influence Robert should be on their lives, and Ian took a lot of um, that legacy, and he always had a part of him that wanted to be a soldier in in reference and in honor of what his father uh, did. Um, but uh, otherwise, he continued to grow up with sort of the idea that he would eventually go into the army. His mother said that he should go into the army at one point. But otherwise, he was kind of a uh, very energetic, very rambunctious youngster uh, who, and this will be a continual uh, theme throughout Fleming's life, uh, was a big ladies' man, even at a very young mm-hmm. age. Right. Um, he he just had this reputation that he could get any woman he wanted. That mm-hmm. was like just like the stories from his family, from like his friends at that time. That he was just like that was his his life. As well as the point that Fleming was very. What I kind of found when people were talking about Fleming is that he was kind of this mix of someone who was very aloof and very like sort of laissez-faire about life that mm-hmm. he was like things would go and he you know he wanted to like live the life of a like, a like like a carefree like was he but was he like a like was he a bachelor type or was, was it just a, more of like that was just like the image he had of he, himself he definitely was a bachelor type yeah and in terms of just like life will work itself out and you know he'll just go off yeah. and like have fun but he was also he also had a very determined spirit uh-huh. in terms of was he cool was yes. was that okay yes. all right yeah, yeah he was very much like a like 1930s definition of cool. Okay, like there, all right. Okay. There's a little bit of a like a like an early like James Dean type in like oh, early okay. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where yeah, he's yeah. just kind of like you know not necessarily the motorcycle riding, but kind of like the guy who just like everybody wants to be around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he also was very much like um very much like a determined, and when he set out to do something, he he did it. When he had a goal to achieve, he didn't always have a goal to achieve, but when he had a goal to achieve, it hits it. Uh, he he achieved it. So um, he was athletic in his youth. Uh, he did cross country and ra- racing at his high school, or, or equivalent British equivalent to like high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a story that goes that uh, he. What is that called in British? That that's not primary. Is it primary? No, I thought primary school was like our elementary school, yeah. isn't it? That's what I. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Know, it, university it, is it, college. Yeah, but university like, is college. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's on the tip of my tongue. Pre-university. Yeah. Um. But there's a story basically about him uh, that um, he he was also kind of a troublemaker because he was cool. And he, you know, back in those days, schools, like, you know, if you'd gotten in trouble, they'd beat you, you know. They'd just beat you up. Yeah. Back in those days. Yeah. Um, 
but he had a cross country. First race. of all, Nick had a little performance when he did that, so I was a little thrown by it. Like I did remember like a, back I, in the I, good days I, when they just beat you. I didn't say good days. I said back in those days. Yeah, those days. Right. They're those days. They're mm. not good days. They're those days. Yeah. Well, I mean, like they're not. They're not necessarily bad days either. It's but they're just, those days. It was just, yeah, just those days. Basically, the story is is that he got in trouble and he was scheduled to like get beaten mm-hmm. uh, as his punishment at the school. But we, we a, called that a whooping back yes, in the day. Yeah. Yes. Um, and he, uh, had a cross country race that afternoon. So he basically convinced the principal and his teachers to reschedule the beating for earlier in the morning Mm -hmm. uh, so that he could still run the race. Mm -hmm. And then he finished second in that race. Um, but uh, he basically presented himself as a badass. Mm -hmm. Um, wait, what, what is that? Wait. Because of that? Or? No, 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 no. Just in general. Yeah, yeah. Just in general. That was like the feeling that people had, and that's how F- Fleming yeah. presented him. So, so the point of the story of the about the 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 postponed beating story yeah. is is what? Well, it's like again, like again, that turn. He wanted to run the race no matter what, but right. also like he had this kind of way where it's like he's cool enough to like you know. He's the one getting punished, but he can like, oh, let's make my punished appointment earlier. So he can day. like almost like pers- like talk his way yes. into. Okay, so like no he, wonder he thinks he's a ladies' man yeah, then. Definitely. Okay. Uh, you I know, got he kind of has the gift of gab. You're right. In terms All right. Of that awesome. Way. All right. Um, Understood. Uh, so, but then as things continue on, he initially does join the army at an early age, um, but there is some concern about his, you know, his dedication to that because he. He does want to join the, you know, he does want to fight. He does want to kind of honor his father's legacy, but he still kind of has that coolness to him. Right, right. Um, there is also a story uh, that goes about him that he, like, during his army days, he asked a girl to go to a dance with him, and the girl said no. And he was so, like, upset about it that he drove all the way from his, like, base to London, picked up a girl at a club, was going to bring her to the dance, and then just brought her home to bed instead. Mm-hmm. But that's just kind of like that. And there was like sort of a lack of focus of his mother basically thought he was sort of schizophrenic or at least what they termed that. Like that's what they determined the mother thought he had mm-hmm. uh, in those days. So he, she suggested to him that he take, go, go out of the army and go to basically a boarding school instead of boarding university to kind of get his head straight mm-hmm. uh, back in those days. Um but he basically surrounded himself. He got his own little bachelor pad at this at this uh, university, mm-hmm. and he basically surrounded himself with women. Mm-hmm. Like it was kind of like he had like a different girl every week type yeah. of deal. It's like that like, one uh, screenshot that we have of on Her Majesty's Secret Service where Lazenby is just surrounded yeah. by all the women. And uh, there's just like like they on the Blu-ray documentary uh, on the Living Daylights, which I had to find. Yeah. Um, uh, he uh there's a bunch of interviews with like people that he knew from his college days and a lot of them are women that just like yeah like we just you know we would hang out and sometimes we you know get get it going and it was just like that was the that was the way ian was right 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 that was the way that he 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 did his life and um but this is where he kind of found a little bit of a direction because the the uh proprietors of the school uh sort of pushed fleming into a writing um lifestyle mm-hmm. uh his brother peter fleming had actually published some books by this time and um fleming sort of found an interest in him, but it, he it did initially short stories but he kind of transitioned into journalism um so he transitioned into journalism did a little bit of stuff with that um he was noted specific, specific, yeah, specifically 
uh, for a very in-depth report about things that were going on in Russia. Um, so he was already kind of noted as being someone who was interested in world affairs and had the knowledge of how to get that information, which would come back to serve him a little bit later down the line. But mm-hmm. out of out of this uh, um, university, uh, he kind of stops that. He doesn't initially go back to the army. He tries to start pursuing this journalism thing, but finds that he's not making enough money to to live the lifestyle he wants to live. Right, right. He wants you know the bachelor pad lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so it, it is funny that like he's not embracing that like oh like cool starving artists because yeah. that is like something he like you you think that you could become you're yeah. like oh and now I'm writing books and like I'm I'm like a, I'm a Hunter S Thompson type but no he's just like no man I want the I want the the cool cars and the women and I want to you know be a, be a cool guy yeah uh, but that's not the case he mm-hmm. uh, he wants to make money because he wants to live a playboy lifestyle right yeah exactly take the women out to nice meals and take them back home Mm -hmm. uh and you know have give them a nice meal in bed (laughs) you know all that sort of fun stuff yeah exactly Uh, so he temporarily goes in the stockbroking um but he basically is determined to be the world's worst stockbroker especially because he tended to take people out to lunch and then pay a lot of money for that lunch and not basically lose all the money he would make in stockbroking right uh, but he basically had no talent in that but he, ah, so a bit of a gambler too yes. a little bit oh that's, that's actually gonna come back too so uh he kind of bumps around a little bit uh in within the 30s um trying to figure out what he's gonna do basically living the lifestyle of like occasional journalism thing making some money stockbroking and and meeting a lot of ladies uh he does immediately ve- meet uh a woman uh, that uh, he actually goes steady with for a while uh, during World War II, which is just about to begin in the late 1930s. Um, so World War II coming soon. Um, again, that one that initial article and some of other Fleming's work about kind of foreign affairs catches the attention of some people within the um, British Royal Navy, uh, especially people that also knew uh, Fleming's father from World War One. Uh, including a man named uh, John Godfrey, who was the director of naval intelligence. And as the war was kind of gearing up and, and Britain was about to enter this war, uh, Godfrey recruited Fleming to basically be his right-hand man within uh, intelligence. Um, and Fleming noted himself that he had no outst- real outstanding qualification. There was no reason for him to get that job, but like, um, he was actually very interested in it because of anything within the naval or army like world kind of that kind of secret intelligence was the thing that intrigued him most. Um, especially because of what Godfrey did a lot of times was he was developing plans for their intelligence teams for basically their spies and how they were going to do different things. Uh, and so he thought that Fleming's work knowing about international affairs, as well as sort of his creative side and some of the short stories he wrote in college um, would do well in terms of just kind of throwing things at the wall and seeing what would stick. And, mm-hmm. and Fleming also appreciated that, uh, you know, basically it would kind of support him for a couple years. And he felt like, again, he was finally kind of living up to that, his, the legacy of his father. Um, and Fleming would do very well in his role uh, within British intelligence and within the Royal Navy. Um, he was definitely noted for a lot of his more off-the-wall ideas, mm. but that's what exactly what Godfrey was looking for. Um, there was a couple ones that I saw that I wanted to mention. Uh, one was uh, the Operation Trout, mm-hmm. uh, which was Fleming's idea to take corpses, um, like fresh corpses, 
and eject them from planes as they were going over uh, like Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the corpse would just fall, making the Germans think that the parachute failed and that the bombers actually like, you know, the plane mm-hmm. wasn't going to do anything, mm-hmm. at which point they could still sneak into the, the city. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point... Um, uh, the British had a lot of weird plans that involved dead corpses. Because <laughs> have you ever heard of the other one? Yeah. Where, where they would like put like it was like something where like they would like it would it would basically like they would put like certain corpses maybe like with a map or something else to basically get like other like the other side off the the trail right of, yeah. I'm, I'm remembering it yeah. wrong but like there, there there there's a lot of strategy in the dead uh he also had a plan uh called operation ruthless which was basically to have um to obtain a, a german bomber uh german ship um and basically a german like airship essentially um and fill it with british people who spoke german crash Mm. it into the english channel wait for the germans to rescue them the fake germans would attack and take over the ship and basically they would have all the nazi Mm -hmm. enigma codes Mm -hmm. at which point someone's like but like probably that bomber's gonna sink too fast for anybody to survive Mm -hmm. um and then of course fleming wasn't uh, on the front lines as much as he wanted to be. He was more kind of on the behind-the-desk job. But there was a one point where Fleming was in France just before it got occupied by Germany, uh, where the Germans were still kind of, you know, there was more so like kind of an uneasy, like the Germans occupying France before they completely took over the country. Uh, and Fleming got this idea that he would go to the casino and basically run the Germans out of money, that basically he would he would just kind of, beat them in all their games and, and run them out. And of course, Fleming lost three times in a row, lost all of his money. He's like, well, that didn't work. And mm-hmm. now the Germans have more. Uh, so he basically had that, but he did have a lot of plans um, that did uh, do well and got him a lot of commendation. Uh, most notably, uh, Operation Goldeneye, um, which was <laughs> Fleming's pl- uh, proposed plan uh, to continue... Uh, it basically was a backup plan that if the Germans invaded and occupied Spain, ways in which the British could still get intelligence from their Spanish uh, allies. Uh, and Operation Goldeneye was very heavily well regarded within the British uh, Navy and the British Royal Intelligence as being a very, very good plan and one of the best plans they had during the war. Now, luckily for them, essentially, they never had to enact it as Spain never really got occupied by Germany. But it did put Fleming on the map, in which point he got his own assault unit. The, the uh, 30 assault unit, also known as uh, Fleming's Red Indians, <laughs> was basically uh, a specific commando unit right. uh, that Fleming basically controlled. That he would basically set their missions. He was basically the M of this group. He would set their missions. He would come up with plans and send them out and all that sort of stuff. Now, and- I'm hoping that... That, oh my god there's so much comedy in that where they pull down like the they pull down the like the curtain and then like the whole title's up on like the side of them and it's like introducing the red indians and then they, <laughs> and they see the title and he's like wait a minute oh no <laughs> oh god <laughs> it just he's like what it just it just sounded cool in my head <laughs> but seeing it, it it's a problem <laughs> Uh, the the group uh, did not re- like the name Red Indians that they got. Um, mm-hmm. not, it's, 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 Fleming kind of adopted it because he kind of had to, but right. most of the rest of the group was like, "We're that's kind of silly." Yeah, um, it's also kind of racist. Yes, which is kind of what I was getting at. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
but uh, they had a lot of success within the um, the uh, they had a lot of success with their missions, especially within uh, Italy and Sicily in that area. They got a lot of information, uh, and so uh, Fleming's star kind of continued to rise. Uh, and uh, he did continue to do more and more within the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but Fleming continued to kind of do that until Gottfried basically left the service uh, and was replaced, um, at which point uh, his, you know, he wasn't as highly regarded by, by the new person in charge. Um, but uh, Fleming was dealing with other issues uh, because his uh, longtime girlfriend at this point um, was also within the uh, Navy, use uh as basically kind of a radio person um and at the same time fleming was also kind of having an affair with someone else he met within the army i mean Uh, baby he's ian fleming like what do you want but the other girl he was seeing she ends up dying in a bombing okay uh uh, and fleming has to identify the body Uh and then a bunch of stuff comes up about their relationship and that's where fleming's original longtime girlfriend left right Got it. Because the girl died, and Fleming had to admit that he was having an affair with her. Why do you have to admit that? Uh, you know, part of the idea. I love how that's where my mind, my my uh, my mind went. Because well, like, where, I was just like, dude, knew- you could have got, you, yeah. you could have got off scot no, free. It was like kind of a thing where Fleming had to identify the body, right? And that was kind of like people knew about that relationship. Oh, I see, I see. And, yeah. And so it kind of got out from there. Got it. Um, but uh, eventually he was um transferred to what was called the T-Force. And the T-Force was basically a group that um, worked with other intelligence agencies to like kind of coordinate information on stuff like that. Not like in- Inspector, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we're going to do everything. It's just more so like a coordination uh, between people, equipments, and stuff like that. It's also known as the Target Force. Uh, and eventually this led to Fleming attending a uh, intelligence summit in Jamaica as part of the T-Force team. And this is where Fleming fell in love with Jamaica. He mm-hmm. was absolutely like, this is where I need to spend the rest of my life. Uh, so we always kept an eye on Jamaica, which would become a very important uh, uh, place within his life. Uh, so soon the war ends, and Fleming's kind of back at square one. Uh, now that the Allies have won, um, there's kind of a little bit of a lull period in intelligence before the real true rise of what the Cold War becomes. Uh, so Fleming decides to get back into journalism. Uh, and he becomes the foreign manager for a newspaper group uh, which owned the Sunday Times, a big newspaper in England. And basically that meant his job was, again, to coordinate sort of the worldwide network of the paper's you know, uh, correspondence and, and, you know, making sure that news from all around the world got it into the paper. Uh, but Fleming again, with his kind of coolness and his gift of gab, even at, as, as he was getting older, um, was able to convince his employers that it gave him three months off every winter. Uh, basically because Fleming wanted to spend three months of the year, every year, uh, in Jamaica, because that was just like the love, the new true love of his life. Also at this time, he is um, in a love triangle with a woman named Anne uh, Anne Charteris, um, who was a very wealthy uh, kind of heiress uh, within World War II that he met. Um, And basically, similar to the other story, her husband died during the war. And basically, this uh, Anne had to choose between Fleming and this other suitor. 
um, that she had. And she chose the other suitor because Fleming seemingly made it clear that he wanted to continue to live the bachelor lifestyle. He was kind of live free. I'm going to live in Jamaica now and, you know, do some writing and I'm just going to, you know, continue to love the ladies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually um, they kept in contact and Fleming would invite him to his new house at Goldeneye. Uh, and from there, their love just continued strong, and she would eventually leave the other man for mm. Fleming. He meets a lot of other people during this time that kind of start to, you know, influence him. His his wife now is, or his girlfriend, who would eventually become his wife, uh, Anne, was kind of a big dinner party type of person. So she would, uh, you know, host a lot of parties, and give him a lot of connections uh, within kind of the British upper class. Um, there was another famous story where. Uh, there was a woman at one of these parties named uh, Margaret Leiter. Mm-hmm. Such a Bond name. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Leiter, of course, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, had known Fleming as, be- as treating one of his, um, one of her girlfriends in the past, like very poorly, kind of like, you know, kind of a man like leaving in the middle of the night type of guy. Who fl- What Fleming was. Fleming was the type of guy who um, would at least leave in the middle of the night you know, type of dude. He, he he claimed he admitted to Anne that Anne was the first woman he ever actually slept all the way through to the morning with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would always like leave early or leave like before they actually got the bit together. But anyway, Miss Leiter was very much like a person who who went up to Fleming. She was bold. She's like, you know, you're a, you're a cur and like I don't like who you are and you treated my friend this way. And Fleming was of course like, you know, I concur with what you say. Do you want to get a drink over it? And of then, course. And then, of course, now they were best friends. Right, right, right. Um, but as so, this is kind of getting into um, the through the forties, he continues his journalism career. Uh, but Fleming is starting to feel a little restless. He's starting to kind of miss uh, those intelligence days that he had. The kind of the excitement of planning and, and execution, and kind of the 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 high stakes of it all. Um, and so. As he continued to have these feelings of nostalgia, uh, he decided to once again try and pursue a writing career. Uh, and his idea was to write the spy story to end all spy stories, mm. which is where we get Cas- Bang, <laughs> which is where we get Casino Royale. Yes. Yeah, and it makes sense too because when you look at his uh, his time in in intelligence, he was definitely like very much very creative, very outlandish in his ideas, very theatrical in mm-hmm. what he was coming up with. So the fact that he would uh, you know want to be a writer or take some sort of creative um, role, and then also let's just when you look at like kind of like what some of these like stories have become, especially like if his idea is like the story, the spy story to end all spy stories. Right, and it's like he he based it a lot upon his time in the war, and a lot of people who knew Fleming basically view Bond as like Fleming in his own image. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, all of this make makes sense. I mean, like. I mean, obviously now we're getting into, you know, when he's writing these books and you've already through this history, you've seen some of these. You Obviously, you've seen the, oh, he gets whatever woman he wants. He can talk as well. He's a smooth talker. You have the tragedy. Obviously, his feelings about losing women in his life, whether it's frivolously on a date or tragically within the war. Yeah. So obvious, you, it's interesting hearing his history and you're seeing like those things get reflected. Fall, yeah, you yeah. see the pieces fall together. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, 
so he writes Casino Royale within two months at uh, during his three-month holiday in Jamaica at GoldenEye. And that would be a tradition for him. All of the Bond novels and all the Bond short stories would be written in GoldenEye. Um, he took a while to get it published. Um, there was some kind of bouncing around of what, what if people would want to see this, but his brother Peter, who had written some stuff again in the 30s, had been a, and had been a noted published author within that period, basically vouched for Fleming and said, like, hey, I can, you know, basically that kind of connection mm-hmm. came up. Um, Eve, uh, once he got his publishing uh, deal done, Fleming immediately celebrated by buying himself a golden typewriter, mm-hmm. uh, which would be the uh, typewriter he would use for the rest of the Bond oh, awesome. novels. That's cool. Uh, so, but so at this point, so he, so he's published, or yeah, he's published. He's with about his to first be published book. in, in you know, 1953. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now he's so uh, thus begins his career as a creative writer. Yes. So basically, this is kind of a late. You know, a little bit of a late bloomer in mm-hmm. theory. I mean, because um, he's he's how old by this? So time? this he was like, born in 1908. So he's kind of into his uh, 40s. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, He's kind of into his 40s, approaching his 50s. Yeah, okay. Um, but he's kind of getting no to shame it. in that. Yeah, but uh, the first Bond book comes out, of course, in the name James Bond, as Fleming would always say, came from the bird watching guide, uh, Birds of the West Indies, by James Bond, because he wanted Bond to have a normal name. He basically wanted to be like every man. You don't want to be like Maximus Hard Candy or whatever, like kind of weird. Right, you know, right. Forties and fifties. I kind of like that one though. That's a good candy. Maximus good Hard candy. candy. Yeah. Um. And uh, he would uh, basically write a Bond book every Jamaican holiday that he had, or sometimes he would take some time early to get to Jamaica if he had an idea for the book. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, yeah, he just continued to, to write and write and write, and the Bond books continued to. Um, you know, kind of gain prominence uh, within uh, the UK, especially. Uh, eventually, would get to America when Casino Royale was published as a paperback in '54. Mm. Uh, and Fleming, especially early on, the thing about Fleming is that now he's very much focused on like his legacy. He wants success. Mm-hmm. He wants fame essentially sure sure yeah because uh, even during the because he wasn't a like again as we discussed he wasn't like a grounded cool dude like you know a man of the people he wanted the the fame right. the glitz and the glamour and it's like because it's like during the war like obviously he wasn't like well known because yeah. of like it's, it's in secret intelligence but he did get notoriety within his own field like yeah. again like operation golden Knight was lauded as a as a great plan that never came to fruition but basically it was like this is super solid yeah and Fleming kind of wanted to achieve that. And, and, and you get this sense that there is a level of always wanting attention and bit of a bit of a drama, a drama king, a drama yes. queen, as it were, like, you mm-hmm. know, with like, oh, doing like these grand acts of these grand gestures when somebody doesn't accept his date invite. So a little bit of, uh, you know, attention's got to be on Fleming. Yes. Uh, so Fleming would use uh, his success of the Bond books to do some some other projects. He wrote a, a nonfiction book called The Diamond Smugglers, mm-hmm. which was about uh, diamond smuggling within Africa, uh, which would turn into the basis for Diamonds Are Forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and he continued to, uh, but the Bond books were his bread and butter. Yeah, and basically, like he what, did, was he a guy that did he ever look back on? Was he a guy who like um, 
was a little bit resentful that he was like the Bond guy, or he, or I, was it not because he was like, well, I'm known for that. No, like, and that's so. basically what it is. Because the thing too is like the other thing we've kind of talked about this over the course of the podcast, but. The other thing about Fleming is that he was very eager immediately to get film and television deals. Mm-hmm. Like, he did not mind if Bond... Because the thing about Bond, too, is because Bond was so based on himself right. and so based on, you know, a very... You know, the, the biggest period of his life up to that point, which was World War II and all the intelligence he, he achieved during that time, he could write those books flat, like right. two, two, three months. Um, like, even though, like, like... We'll talk about Thunderball, but even though, like, Thunderball was based on you know, someone else's story, he basically put that out in like three weeks because it's like he right. just knew what he was doing. Right. But and he wanted the he wanted the attention and the the deals and the yes. so he's he's a, he's the Mark Millar of novels. <laughs> just making all these ideas. And it definitely, television like deals. like any other writer, he had his ups and downs of uh you know, like like the Doctor No book wasn't too well reviewed, didn't right. do too hot, but his next one would be a kind of a big hit and and sort of the miss hit and miss of his Film prospects, obviously, the early Casino Royale stuff didn't didn't excite him too much. The stuff with Kevin McClory, especially, sort of de, you know, it sort of like kind of made him upset about the prospect of mm-hmm. it because like the things didn't weren't working out right. in its way. Uh, also, during this time, um, you know, he was having issues with his wife because now Fleming was in this world where things were changing for him because mm-hmm. now he was very much entrenched into. His wife's upper class dinner parties every week, going out all the time. Life and Fleming, there was still a part of him that wanted just the cool bachelor pad life, where mm-hmm. he could just like sit back and write a book and have a woman over and right. have a drink and have a smoke. Um, he was drinking and smoking a lot during this period, and uh, a lot of things basically kind of led it to sort of not the downfall necessarily, but kind of troubled him at the end of his life. Obviously, the he had a heart attack in '61 right around the time that he was getting sued by Kevin McClory about the Thunderball rights. Mm-hmm. There was questions overall of what he could and couldn't use with Bond now because of how long that was in development. He was basically trying to get to Jamaica to escape his wife. And he was basically kind of, you know, uh, a lot of people noted around him that he was kind of smoking and drinking himself to death, essentially. It's just kind of the pressure now that he put upon himself, that he wanted to be his success. He wanted to be known he wanted to have kind of this life, and now that he was kind of reflecting back and kind of wanting the life that he had, the bachelor life, it's just kind of put to pressure on him. Was a little bit relieved when he actually had dinner with uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, who was a noted fan of uh, From Russia With Love, who was actually introduced to the book by Miss Leiter herself. Um, and uh, Fleming was in Washington doing a tour and got to meet with Kennedy and have dinner, at which point he suggested to Kennedy uh, over dinner that the way to defeat Cuba uh, within the war, because the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that sort of stuff was brought right. up, mm-hmm. uh, the way to defeat Cuba was to uh, send uh, drop flyers over the island of Cuba mm-hmm. that basically said all bearded men are uh, impotent mm-hmm. and uh, you guys should get away from here and, and get some you know real men. <laughs> right. From okay. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and they all had a laugh yeah. over that. Um, but uh, Fleming, you know, despite the setbacks, he continues to try to write. He gets a deal with the Playboy magazine to mm-hmm. do short stories, which is where stuff like Octopussy and The Living Daylights and uh, For Your Rights Only come from. A lot of those short stories were originally published in Playboy magazine. Um, and his star continues to rise. Eventually, he does make the deal with Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman uh, to sell all the, all the rights besides Casino Royale. 
uh, and he is very excited about the prospects of, you know, what happens with Dr. No, very influenced by Sean Connery's performance of Bond, where he integrates Sean's performance and Sean's being Sean Scott's history within the Bond character in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He kind of uses his tensions he's having with his wife to kind of fuel the Tracy character uh, and her death, which kind of is reflecting on Fleming's own struggles with with women again Mm -hmm. uh with that but eventually um it's uh he also is getting other deals he helps develop the man from uncle Mm -hmm. for television uh in the early 60s as well uh and there's a lot of prospects for the future but unfortunately fleming has another heart attack uh in 1964 and uh dies uh a little bit like as his star was finally kind of really solidifying itself that like these bond movies were just getting established. He, he dies, uh, before he can see Goldfinger and dies around that production. Um, and you know, he was developing other TV shows. He was writing a children's novel, which we're about to talk about. And it was just kind of like, things were just too much for him. Like the, the, the the pressure in the life that he created for himself just kind of ate himself alive. Mm, mm -hmm. And, uh, Fleming does leave that legacy just kind of ironically, that like he would not live to see his Bond character get as big as anything in the world. Right, like, right, definitely. Because like again, if we re- if we reflect on those first two Bond movies, uh, Doctor No and From Russia with Love, you know they were successes, but you know those were still kind of lower budget and you know kind of you know From Russia with Love starts to get the big hits, but it's still not the big money maker. But by the time you get the Goldfinger and, and Thunderball and Free Rides Only when these movies are making hundreds of millions of dollars, creating its own blockbuster franchise, merchandising up the wazoo. It's like he basically left this earth right before all that happened. And, yeah, yeah. And it's just that, like – That is kind of like – but it, it, it's it's almost – you know, because it's a shame, but you almost can't say that the guy didn't have anything going for him because he definitely had an interesting life that yeah. definitely influenced all of that. Um, and it, it's just really interesting to see, um, all of that kind of, because it, it, what I think like the biggest thing for me listening to it, cause it's very easy. Um, well, it's almost gonna, it's almost interesting to think about it. This as like a thought experiment of like, would he have been the guy who would be very content with uh, the, the success of the Bond franchise, mm-hmm. like, or would he have been somebody who? Because it looked like eventually, like, he did kind of like spread his his uh, his wings a little bit into the stuff that he was writing. That it yeah. wasn't primarily just the Bond stuff. Like, would he have been somebody? Would he have been a George Lucas figure who would have like looked back upon? He's like, oh man, this like franchise got it out of hand. Or would he be a Rob Liefeld and just be like, this is the best thing I ever did. And I'm going to ride off of ride onto it until the day I die. So it's like, but it is interesting to think, but unfortunately we know that's a piece of history. I, I that do. We would never I do get. bet you that Fleming, even though he was not an artist could draw feet better than Rob. Liefeld. <laughs> he could probably describe them in the pages of his, uh, uh, of, of his book. Uh, but, um, he does but, yeah. get uh man with the golden gun published, uh, after his death, mm-hmm. which was a book that he was heavily considering rewriting because he didn't really like the final product, but mm-hmm. the publisher was just like, well, this is what we have. Uh, and then his short stories would be collected as well, and he would have one other book released post-death, which was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes. So, And so just so I'm aware, so that's how many Bond books under uh, his name? Uh, 13 Bond books under his name. 13 Bond books. Okay, believe, so that's a healthy amount. I, wait, uh, 
I, I just want to double check because I believe it's 13 full novels and then the two short story compilations, but I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can check that. But, but to be, but regardless, like he definitely has a, no, he, uh, he definitely had a lot. And yeah. again, he had, you know, other books that he did like little smaller projects and, and just, uh, but it's like, what's, what's funny is that like Ian Fleming, and I think this is something we'll talk about within a deep dive is just kind of the legacy of those books mm-hmm. and how the film franchise kind of eclipsed it. But you still get the the Ian the Fleming name in front of every Bond movie, even these Craig movies. You get Ian Fleming's Bond, or mm-hmm. based on the you know the, you still get that credit. Yeah. Uh, within those movies, and so his legacy does you see it in all these films. Yeah. It's still like Ian, um, you know, because the original movies it was always Ian Fleming's name above the t- book title or the movie title because those were all books that he wrote. Sure. Once you get to the kind of the later Bond, it's like Ian Fleming's James Bond in you know Tomorrow Never Dies yeah. because. That character is still his, and and that is his legacy. That kind of, despite kind of the tragedy of says how he kind of, basically you know drove himself to death with just kind of his alcoholism and his smoking and just kind of doing too much of that in right. too little time, he still sort of achieved that success that he he longed for. Yeah, he still. Well, no, I, I was I was gonna say that is the biggest thing for a man who basically. Uh, probably, as you said, like dro- drove himself. Um, you know, probably was hard on himself for wanting to always go for like being like you know the name with a lot of fame to him. And then, unfortunately, even though he died before you could see all that happening, it is interesting to see that not only has this spawned one of the longest running film franchises of all time, but also the fact that you're right, like Ian Fleming's name is attached in some way to all of, whether it's the Bond name itself or the Bond titles itself. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I would, it'd be interesting to see how many people like really quickly associate, um, like your average person, like right. how much do, does the name Ian Fleming come up, uh, uh, into the average person's head but at the but regardless when you look at all of these films his name is always on yeah. them yeah i think like fleming is a name that even if you don't know the work specifically like you may not have read the bond books there's that like the name itself is just so distinct yeah like ian fleming yeah james bond it kind well, of but, fits but, together. It, but it should be good uh, you know you have to give credit for that because you know you know we're both comic book fans and the whole history of who gets credit on certain characters with like, you know, with Superman or recently like the Bill Finger thing with like uh, with Batman. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many kind of like uh, questionable decisions and pieces of history when it comes to like who gets credit for things like that. So uh, it should not be, you know, scoffed at the fact that his name is always been attached to, to this material. Indeed. Um, so uh, but that leads us into i think the big, the next bit of material that goes a little bit in a different direction than we have with the bond films so i think i think for this episode we're going to do something a little bit different okay. i think we're going to take our break now okay. and then we'll talk about the making of and what we thought about this movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Shall we do it? That sounds good to me. Let's go for it. And cue the music. Actual music. Yes. Uh, For the second straight episode. (laughs) Music. (laughs) Here we go. Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, you. Pretty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We love you. And our Pretty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. What's us do? Hi, low. Anywhere we go on Chitty Chitty We Be Bang. Bang bang chitty chitty bang bang, our fine four fender friend. Bang bang chitty chitty bang bang, 
I'll find poor Fender's friend. You're sleek as a thoroughbred. You're sleek. And we're back. All right. Yeah. That was, that was uh. I hope that I hope that got everybody in a jaunty too, because it's like we were kind of like doing kind of like a memoriam thing yeah. right before the break. Yeah. And then I hope that got everybody jazzed up for for these fun times. So, mm-hmm. Nick, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, one of the biggest things that I think when we started uh, talking about all this stuff is I was familiar with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang a little yeah. bit. And but I did not know that it was an Ian Fleming creation. So yes. you touched briefly on Ian Fleming. Uh, this was one of his. This was one of his works, yes. and so let's. Uh, so we have a good portrait and a picture of both a portrait and a picture, a picture of a portrait. Yeah, of um how it's clear to see how he he connects to the Bond stuff. Yeah, how on earth does Ian Fleming get to get to a whimsical tale of a man, his children, and a flying car? <laughs> yes. So the story of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as a novel does begin again with the Kevin McClory lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, he, Fleming is not well, not healthy during this point. You know, he's worried about this lawsuit. There's kind of a paranoia about like, will he be able to write more Bond books? Is this going to screw him over in that regard? Did he screw himself? So he starts coming up with alternate ideas, and he basically has this kind of nighttime tale, this bedtime tale he's told to his son Casper about this, you know, magical flying car. Mm-hmm. And during that lawsuit, the initial kind of drafting comes up with, well, what if I put this on the page and, and maybe did something a little bit different? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because So this was consciously his, like, I'm going to do a different yeah, thing. Yeah, this was consciously him doing a different thing. And also it was kind of more so like, even though he was having an issue with his, like, issues with his wife and sort of trying to always get away from her and to write his books... Uh, Fleming also regarded himself as like he felt his son was one of the greatest things that he, you know, was one of the things that kind of kept him within that family, right. Casper. And so that was kind of even in that sense like a tribute to his son and and that sort of sort of thing. And it just kind of like came up like the way that it was kind of crazy naturally to him, like most of his work. He just kind of started the banging out and then so the initial drafting happens in like sixty one with that lawsuit, but once the lawsuit's clear that bond or that Fleming will definitely retain book rights to Bond, and you know he has the book rights to Thunderball since it is his creation. He sets the project aside for a little bit and and goes back to doing more Bond stuff because that's what he feels comfortable with. Um, but he, after his second heart attack uh, later in '62, uh, a friend of his lets him borrow a children's book of, a, of another friend, and uh, Fleming. Do, do do they know? Do we know which one it was? Or? Yes, I can get the I can get the title. Um, it was a it was a squirrel based book. Um, I can remember that Ian Fleming, but I'll just keep talking. Uh, so Fleming enjoys the book, and the friend says, "You know that that story you started, that bedtime story you tell your your son about the the car, that would that would make a that would make a great book. Like you should you could go back to it." And Fleming basically was like, "Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that." Um, he basically was like, "I definitely think I should." Um, uh. Continue. The, the book was The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that was a book that kind of inspired him to go back on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So he basically. Did he conceive it as like when he originally conceived it? Was it like a children's thing or was it just like the idea and like this? 
kind of like it given was, this book, he's like, oh well, maybe I can make it like a children's. No, it uh, was thing. so. It basically, the initial one was it was based on this bedtime story that he told to his son. Mm-hmm. But basically, like if I did this in book form initially, got it, got it. Uh, okay. So it was always. So kind this of just a, kind of reignited. He's like, oh yeah, I have a children's idea that yeah. I can work on. Yeah. So basically, there's that, and he just kind of attacks the story again. Like I said, most of Fleming's work, he just he knew what he was writing. If I said this was a story he told to his son, mm-hmm. he added more details for the book, uh, which is a little bit different from the movie. So right. Fleming's version of the book is about uh, this inventor, mm-hmm. uh, Pot, Caddis uh, Potts. Yeah. Uh, and actually, in the book, it's Pot, and then mm-hmm. in the movie, it's Potts. Right. So, uh, but anyways, it's inventor has a wife and two children. Uh, he's trying to get his candy business off the ground, but unfortunately, he uh, is denied. His whistle sweets mm-hmm. um, does not do well, uh, but he finds his car in a junkyard and invests in in re- repainting it. At which point, the car at some point comes alive mm-hmm. uh, to him, uh, and eventually leads to uh, the family, the family of uh, the mo- the mother, the son, uh, the mother, the two daughters. Sorry, the two daughters. It's a son and a daughter. Mm-hmm. The mother, the son, the daughter, and <laughs> you okay? And, and the inventor. <laughs> Basically. I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna have a stroke. No, no. <laughs> yeah, how many members of the family? No, it's a, there it's, were. It's yeah. the inventor, his wife, and yeah. his two kids. That's what I should have said in the okay. first place. They eventually the and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang the car. Um, eventually, who uh, is called Chitty Chitty Bang Bang because of the noise because of makes, the noise it makes, uh, which yeah. was actually a very deep, so Fleming, uh. Was actually a very big car person as well. Mm-hmm. Um, had a it was famously like a Thunderbird uh, was his car of choice, and then his wife bought what she called a Thunder Chick um, <laughs> to kind of combat that. Right. Uh, but he was very much like someone. He said in an interview once that like the sound of a car makes is is more important to me than anything else about a car. It's, right. It's, it's got to sound good. So he he definitely noted that in the book, and that was kind of the inspiration for the car story to begin with was mm-hmm. Fleming's sort of interest in cars, which also translates into the Bond books, where Bond has a lot of cars. Um, but anyways, so in the book, the family with the now-alive car who can suddenly fly and swim uh, saves the uh, big sweet magnet, um, Scrumptious, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Scrumptious, from a gangster, mm-hmm. basically. And that's, like, the story. Right, yeah. Uh, so very much simple, kind of a little bit, like, weirdly more down to earth, but also more fantastical in some yeah, ways. Yeah, we'll but talk. It, it definitely has the vibe of like a like a, a basic children's story. Like it's, a it's basic just like story. inventor wants to make a candy, can't makes a a flying car that takes you on a slight whimsical adventure, and then everything goes well in the end because of said car and the ingenuity yes. and imagination of the dad. Yes, um, uh, eventually, you know, they save Mister Scrumptious and mm-hmm. defeat Joe the gangster. And uh, the Mr. Scrumpson's like, I like your whistle sweets. Mm-hmm. Let's make you rich. Right, everybody's, right, right. Everybody's happy. So that's kind of the the story. Um, Fleming would just again bang out the book, um, but unfortunately died before its publication. Mm. Uh, it was one of the later latest books of his to be released. Man with the Golden Gun first, the short stories alongside Shitty Shitty Bang Bang, all released after his death. So this is so now I'm learning this. So this is getting into a. Uh, cinematic creation that really he was not present for no that's okay that's Uh, fascinating so basically let's jump even though i would argue as we get into the movie itself there are very there are various parallels and uh, details that you have just expressed to me about uh fleming's life that are present in this movie Mm -hmm. that's that's very fascinating to see but so anyway uh so that so the book gets published eventually after the book is published uh you know tells well decent reviews obviously it's like an author who died you know 
has had a notoriety sure. for his books. So yeah, he's a, kinda, the James Bond guy. Yeah, makes a children's Bond book. Guy, yeah, makes a children's book. So it had that notoriety. Um, so that basically is like the story of Fleming writing the book. But mm-hmm. now we have the movie to to make. Uh, so this comes out of United Artists mm-hmm. are very happy with the success of the Bond franchise. Um, you know they they have just released. You know they're in the realm of they're just about to release. Uh, How many kids did Fleming have? I'm sorry. He had one. One a son. Uh, y- yes. Okay. All right. Um, he had. So I was sorry. Sorry. He had one son born after the marriage. He did have some stepchildren with Anne. Yeah. Okay. Got uh, it. But basically, like he he considered his son Casper to be his like true son, but he enjoyed you know his other two sure. steps steps sure. kids as well. Yeah. Um. So United Artists is very happy. They've come off Thunderball. They're in the middle of production of uh, You Only Live Twice. And they're very happy with the movie, the money this movie is making. It's their biggest thing going. It's, you know, this huge popular franchise. And they come to Cubby and they're like, Cubby, do you do you have any other projects you want to work on? We, you know, we have some room here at United Artists to basically kind of do something else alongside what we're doing with Eon. So if you have anything you want to do, you know, please let us know. Please give us a pitch. So if you remember, we, we have the partnership between broccoli and saltzman uh uh cubby broccoli and harry saltzman now saltzman was always doing his own projects he had done like he was doing you know he was investing in italian cinema companies he was you know helping with new camera equipment and and new camera technologies he produced a greece style musical set in outer space like he did saltzman was doing a bunch of stuff but broccoli outside of Eon's only other non-bond, uh, only non-bond picture, Call Me Bond with Bob Hope. Cubby was very much focused on the Bond books uh, and the Bond movies. But when United's artist came up to him with this offer, he was like, "Well, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could do something on the side. Maybe I could do something." Well, you know, we're kind of in between. You know, we've just lost, you know, Connery with, you know, um, you only live twice, so we have some time as we're discovering the next Bond. So maybe I can get my team to do something else, something just a little bit like off off the beaten path. And then he remembered that with his deal with the with the Fleming estate, he had the rights to all of other Fleming's books besides Casino Royale. And that included Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mm. And also around this time, uh, a couple years prior, uh, Cubby Broccoli had been a big fan of the success of Walt Disney's Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he basically said, well, if I could make this... Fleming children's book into kind of a big Mary Poppins. Essentially production. our Mary Poppins. Yes. That's our Poppins. Yes. Yeah. But basically this could be something fun and different for the team. And this right. would, this would just kind of possibly be a success. Um, especially considering like how, you know, big the Disney studio in terms of what it was at that time had gotten, you know, with, with Poppins and the animation stuff they were doing around that period. So Fleming decides to tell United artists, let's, why don't we do this kind of big children's musical film? And the United Artists like, great, that sounds great to us. I mean, you know, people are coming out to see these things. You have this, you know, Dr. Doolittle and is also in production around this time as well. Yeah, the yeah. original. Rex- I mean, it's a film that you would be forgiven by thinking it's a Disney musical. Right, yes. Like, frankly. Frankly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because of the talent behind it, which we're going to get Yeah. Um, but first, uh, they need some, some writers and directors mm-hmm. to kind of get this on the front. So our director of this movie... Is not Guy Hamilton, though yeah, he no. was <laughs> he was considered, but he uh, was busy at the time. Yeah. Um, but our director is Ken Hughes. Mm-hmm. Now Ken Hughes does have a Bond connection. Yes. Though he never directed an Eon Bond, mm-hmm. he did direct the Mata Bond weird Tim Burton house stuff. Yes. For Casino Royale sixty seven. Yes. If you remember that, 
he was basically roped into doing that where he was just giving notes on the movie. It's like, I kind of like this Madabon character. And then, you know, Feldman was like, here, take money, make more Madabon stuff. And mm-hmm. he was like, okay. But Hughes was very much at this point in his career where he wanted stuff he wanted to do, but he didn't have the money or didn't have the clout to do it. Mm-hmm. So he's basically taking some projects for money um, to the point where uh, that was one of the reasons he took Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It was basically like, it's going to pay me some money. And also, this is a type of movie that could be a big success. And if it's a big success, this could get me my, you know, my passion projects off the ground. If right. I say, like, I directed Chitty Chitty this Bang is, Bang. This is the one for them that yeah. he's doing. Yeah. yeah. So basically, he's like, fine, I'll do this. Uh, but he needs a writer. Ken, uh, Ken Hughes agrees to do some partial writing for the movie. And uh, the other writer of this movie, um, basically, Fleming was like, well, we kind of have a children's author on uh, <laughs> You Only Live Twice. So why don't we just bring him in? For this movie. Uh-huh, yeah. So Roald Dahl uh-huh. does uh, continue his partnership with Cubby Broccoli. That's awesome. To write the script for uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Now, the original script, the first draft, was very much a little bit closer to Fleming's novel. Mm-hmm. And in reality, the first half of this movie, with some alterations uh, that the group agrees on, uh, is very similar. The main yes. thing that they change is uh, within the first half of this movie is that they make... Um, Potts a widow uh, because they are thinking that the kind of having the you know the kind of the budding romance is something that people will get invested in so the character of truly scrumptious uh, was completely invented for the movie mm-hmm. uh, and so basically that was Rold's idea and Rold had said that he came up with the name truly scrumptious because he was like this would be like this is kind of an Ian Fleming type of like you know pun little name right yeah yeah, that yeah. Was specific. I never thought of it that way that's actually kind of funny like it's a children friendly yeah. version of like yeah. uh, about of a Bond yeah girl so name. but basically yeah. that was rolled like well it's a Fleming novel so why not give her a Fleming name yeah that's awesome um, but rolled really pushes for the second half of the movie to get much more fantastical mm. much more in the realm of like his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and the witches and stuff like that. Something he wanted something a little to push it a little bit more fantastical, a little bit more bigger. Right, right. Uh, and and I'm sure that there they nobody blinked an eye at that because it's like, well, yeah, you know, Mary Poppins is yeah. doing stuff like that too. Right, so yeah. Like, so yeah. basically, but that's the thing. Like everybody agrees. Even Hughes says, like, yeah, this seems like it's fun, but it's like the second half of that movie and all of its contents are very much rolled doll mm-hmm. things. Um, but but Broccoli wants to go a step further now that he has his director now that he has his writers he has his script he really wants to make mary poppins and what's the way you make mary poppins by getting the main cast and crew right of yeah. mary poppins uh-huh. uh so he gets uh, easiest get for him he gets some of the choreographers of mary poppins um that worked with the disney studio on that one but there's two sets of people two pairs that's very much hard to get and we'll talk about the first pair that that he gets is uh the songwriting team of richard sherman and robert sherman now, Richard Sherman and Robert Sherman are um, were the in-house songwriting team for the Walt Disney Studio. Um, they started in the late 50s of writing for uh, Starlet and Annette Funicello, would eventually get onto the film side of things with their work on The Parent Trap, and their partnership only got bigger from there. They wrote the scores to Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. Happiest Millionaire, which was just released around this time, Jungle Book they were working on at this point, and uh, also Sword in the Stone. Uh, they had done It's a Small World for the Disney Park. So basically, they were the in-house team for Disney. They had signed their exclusive contracts. But within their contracts themselves, uh, there was a clause that allowed them to do one non-Disney project within that period. Now, they never had really gotten offers or anything that really interested them. But when Cubby Broccoli came up with them with the idea of, of doing 
Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the Shermans were very intrigued. They liked kind of the story. They thought it had a lot of musical, uh, you know, potential. Potential, mm-hmm. and they kind of liked the characters, and so they thought this could be our one project. But we really, I mean, even though it's in our contract, we don't want to upset Walt because he's basically given us our careers, right? So they go to Walt and he's like, listen, I know it's in our contract that we can do one non-Disney film and we're thinking this is the one we want to do, but we, if, if you don't want us to do it, if you want us to ignore that, we will totally do that for you. But Walt took a look at Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the book, and basically said, this is a great idea, guys. It's, it's one I wish I would have had. Isn't that crazy the era where like studios owned actors? And like talent like talent that. that yeah, yeah, that's crazy. But like basically like he was like, this is a great idea. It's something I wish I would have snapped up, but this is a good opportunity, guys. You guys can go do it. So uh, they were actually working pretty much on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Happiest Millionaire, and Jungle Book all around the same time. And the main difference with the Sherman Brothers on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as opposed to the Disney works is it's not – this is not really known, but it is a very big part of those films is that with the Disney works, the Sherman Brothers were very much a part of the story team that even if they're not credited as screenwriters, they were very much in those meetings, coming up with story ideas, coming up with the flow. Um, later down the line, they would basically be the guys who create the story of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which was a couple years later. But like stuff like Happiest Millionaire and Mary Poppins, they were basically part of the screenwriting team, whether or not they were credited or not. So they were very much involved. With Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, because they were still working on Happiest Millionaire and Jungle Book, they weren't as involved with the story team because also that's not how Broccoli kind of viewed how that would work. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, like, you know, the, the songwriters write the songs and the screenwriters write the screenplay. So basically, like, you know, they got pitched, like, here's the script, here's where we think musical numbers could come in, and the Sherman Brothers wrote those songs as were. But they definitely had a good time writing these songs, and, and they've um, Richard especially has mentioned some of the songs as, you know, among some of his favorites that he's done. Um, especially the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang theme, mm-hmm. as well as Mule Bamboo, which are very much classic Sherman sound and, and nonsense word type right, of songs. Right, right. Um, so they get the Shermans, and that's pretty easy, but Broccoli wants to go bigger. Mm-hmm. Broccoli wants, you know, Barry Broccoli wants to make Mary Poppins. So what he wants is that he wants to t- re-team Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke uh, in the two lead roles. Now, Julie Andrews uh, would have been the truly scrumptious character. And Julie just was like, no, right, absolutely not. Um, uh, she sort of viewed it as very much like a Mary Poppins light type of role, especially with the Sherman's similar songwriting, just kind of a similar air to the character. And this was kind of she would have she would do doing other musicals, but this is kind of where like Julie wanted to kind of do more adult stuff. And this was the formation of a relationship with Blake Edwards. Uh, the, you know, the creator of the Pink Panther films who would do in Victor and Toria and, and basically do a long set of films with her. So Julie was like asked multiple times, but basically said no. So instead for that role, we get uh, Sally Ann Howes as Truly Scrumptious. And the reason that Sally Ann Howes was cast was that uh, she had famously replaced Julie Andrews on Broadway in My Fair Lady. Uh, that whole story is that, you know, Julie originally went to do My Fair Lady in london and she was not cast into my fair lady film so the broadway version had to do uh, something else so sally ann house was uh her replacement on broadway and so cubby's like well if i can't get julie i'll just get her replacement basically the next best thing to julie uh but dick van dyke uh does sign on to be uh Katika's pots uh dick also had um refused the role a couple times 
Uh, but basically, since he couldn't get Julie, he had uh, Broccoli had some extra budget to spend. Right. So he kept throwing money at uh, Dick, and eventually Dick Van Dyke was like, "Well, I can't refuse this." Um, especially because Dick Van Dyke was also going through personal problems at this time. Um, very heavy drinker and smoker as well. Um, though he very much was tried to be tried to keep that off the set, which is why you never really hear those types of things about a Dick Van Dyke. Uh, one famous story that Dick tells Dick Van Dyke tells about this movie is that they were, uh, um, he was in a meeting with Cubby and Cubby kind of semi joked like, well, and if the, you know, we're still looking for a new bond. So if this is successful, maybe you can be our new bond. And Dick Van Dyke was like, well, have you heard my British accent? And, <laughs> and Cubby was like, oh yeah, no, excellent. Never mind. 100%. Never That's mind. Great. Um, but, uh, Flint, uh, Dick Van Dyke also tells another great story where like during the production of this movie, he kind of felt like he pulled a muscle and he went to a doctor to be like, well, what's going on? And the doctor's like, dude, like your body's falling apart. You're going to have like arthritis within five years. You're mm-hmm. not going to be able to move. And then Dick Van Dyke just like stood up and did like a perfectly like amazing, like Dick Van Dyke style dance. Right. And the doctor was like stunned. And of course that would lead to in, the, in his nineties, he would actually do some dancing on Mary Poppins return. Yeah, no, I mean, he's notoriously known for being like still a fairly yeah. limber old, uh, elder gentleman. Uh, so, from there, we get um, the rest of the cast. So we have Dick Van Dyke, Sally Ann Howes. We get the children cast, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we ha- we do have some Bond connections in this cast. Um, we have a-, a brief appearance by Desmond Leland mm-hmm. uh, as Mr. Coggins, who owns uh, the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang car um, initially, mm-hmm. uh, but as the children play with it. I almost didn't recognize him. No. You yeah. know who else I almost didn't recognize? Yeah. Gert Frobe uh-huh. as uh, the Baron, or the, the Baron Bombust. Uh-huh. Uh, so Goldfinger himself is the main villain. In oh, this yeah. No, I did. that went over my head completely. Now that you say it, though, I'm yeah. like, oh, yeah. Uh, so he, did, he yeah. had lost a little bit of weight and uh-huh. had improved on his English, so it actually is his voice in this yeah. movie. But I did recognize the Baroness in yeah, the, in the, the, the movie. Yeah, the Baroness and Quail, yeah. uh, who... Uh, had a not only a Bond connection, but a Ken Hughes connection is that he was the Frau Hofsner uh-huh. uh, in those Mata Bond sequences that Ken Hughes directed for Casino Royale 67. Um, we also have a British comedian and uh, song person Lionel Jeffries as the grandpa and Benny Hill, the famous of the yes. famous Benny Hill theme as the toy maker. Um, so basically from there, uh, he gets basically the rest of his Bond crew. So Ken Adam, uh, is the main production designer on this movie, and he uh, designs the main car. Uh, Peter Lamont, who would become the lead production designer of the Bond team, is the assistant production designer. Peter Hunt, who is, would go on to direct um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, is an associate producer, assistant editor, or sorry, assistant director and editor again. Um, uh, the main car, uh, they built seven cars for the movie. The main car uh, was the only car that actually worked as a car. The rest mm-hmm. of them was like the flying plane and the, and the floating plane, you know, those types of things. Right, yeah. Uh, that car, uh, do you know who owns that car today, Will? No, I do not. Uh, so the car bounced around uh, different things uh, a little bit of time. Um, and in 2011, it sold for just under $1 million to New Zealand film director uh-huh. Peter Jackson. Oh, that makes sense. That, yeah, uh, okay. And Fair so enough. the car still, And it's a cool-looking car. Don't get me wrong. It's a cool-looking yeah, car. And uh, Jackson and uh, his team, his Weta team in uh, New Zealand, uh, uses the car to show for actors from set to set. Uh, so there's that. Awesome. Uh, but basically, that's just, you know, they, they're making a disney musical but yeah. just you know with a kind of a bond the bond team is doing something different 
Uh, which again, they kind of afford it because after the pressure, you know, it's kind of interesting kind of reflecting on this too, because they had like the pressure. Now the bond side of things just lost Sean Connery. The future of that is like, well, who do we have as bond? We're still going to continue. You know, Cubby's like, we're definitely continuing this. We just need to find a new bond. So there's a kind of pressure of like what we're going to do. So Cubby felt like, well, this would be a nice little something different for the team. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not an official Eon Productions production, it's something that his team can kind of just – a little fun little thing we can do while we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with Honor Majesty Secret Service. Yeah, and then they come up with uh, this movie, which um, let's, I think – I think it's time to get into my yeah, thoughts. Yeah, I think it is time. Um, this was another – so this was pretty much another example of something that both – because you hadn't seen this, not all the way through. I've yeah. seen like I've I had basically seen most of the musical sequences. Yes, but I had me not, too. I had not seen like the full picture. Right, and I and I had and we the, caught it just as it left Amazon Prime. Yeah. So. so the story behind that was is that uh, it was on Amazon Prime, um, which means we could just watch it for free. But uh, it was just funny that it was like we were scheduled to watch it, but then it was like oh. It's uh, it's you know, leaving it's Amazon. leaving Amazon Prime on like this day, and it was funny. We watched it uh at night, and then by the time we finished it, when it went back onto the main menu, it was like, oh, like you know, right, like, get get a stars yeah. uh subscription, which is another lesson, boys and girls, of why about, you need physical uh, media, and why you need physical media, because, and then if you're streaming, then you don't own your shit. Yeah, well, it's and like as I consider, I considered purchasing this movie like for you know dvd or blu-ray because right. has a nice like two disc blu-ray set mm-hmm. um but i was kind of like well if it's on amazon prime it's not like really on my like huge list of things i have other things i want to get i'm collecting records now folks so I need to save some yeah, money somewhere yeah. <laughs> um but uh but so- it, but uh, it was one but i was familiar with it that i was familiar with some of the songs and then i've had the story that i believe i mentioned on the podcast of uh, seeing this on London Way, which is also known as <laughs> West End, but just to talk about the movie itself, um, I I have to say I had a very specific thought yeah. while when watching this movie. You know what? You know when people say like, "Oh, they don't they don't make like they don't make the movies like they used to make anymore." Yeah. This is this is the type of movie that I was thinking of. Like, you know what? This is the movie that people should be talking about when they talk about that they don't make a certain type of movie anymore. Right. I and I legitimately had that thought because I was just like, listen, because when people normally talk I'm gonna put one foot on the soapbox real quick. But when people normally talk about like, oh, they don't make a certain type of movie anymore, they do, it's just in a different way. In it's a different like form. It's in a different format and people don't yeah. want to acclimate to it. But this is the type of movie that I was sitting there and watching and I have to admit, I was thoroughly enjoying my time watching this movie. And then I was sitting there, I'm like, wait, where is like when's the last time that I've seen a whimsical family musical I mean, I guess there there was Mary Poppins, yeah. like, and I I haven't seen Mary Poppins, but the returns, yeah, re- returns. But when you think about it, like, because there's like a plethora of movies like this, and I kind of said this during the Darby O'Gill episode, yeah. which I enjoyed, but I can kind of see why you don't make a mainstream theatrical yeah. uh, entry like like that. Uh, whereas like this, it's like you know this is like it's a feature length movie. It's got like characters and it's got like character like well of course I mean but it's got like fleshed out characters I yeah. should say it's got fleshed out character dynamics. Uh, it's very theatrical and it's got mm-hmm. like you know like catchy music uh, to it and you can sing along to it. It's definitely giving the experience of uh, having like uh like an overture and an intermission and like oh, yeah. and, and everything. So like I was just thinking like while watching it, I'm like, this is like 
man, when's the last time that that we've had a movie like this? So, and to talk about the movie itself, which again I thoroughly enjoyed, I will say this about it though. I think the first third of this movie is excellent. Yes, I was. I, this, that was going to be my thoughts. I, on it. I think the I fir- actually will extend it a little bit to the first half of ish. Yeah, to me. Um, but like, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, what I thought about it is, I legitimately think the first third is really good. Like, I think it's like legitimately an excellent film. Uh, and then I, the only reason I say third is because the second third of it is when I think it it's starting to become apparent that it's it's not quite. Like a little bit in that in that middle portion, I was kind of like, okay, all right, no, like this is all great, and then you kind of get that sense of like, okay, where where is this going? Yeah, where, what, so what, what is happening? Those are reflecting my thoughts. And over. then you get to the third half where the movie just completely goes off the rails and is not the cool. third. What did you say? The third, the third half. Third half. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, you you know you have the thing. What, well, is, there, what is happening here? There is also an intermission. Is it? Is it leaking? Does it look that way? Kind of. There's a light. Yes. Yeah, but like it looks like it's like leaking. Yeah. I'm looking at the lamp and it's like dropping something. Well, you know what they say. Those it, classic lamp droppings. Well, you know, it's but uh, there's no like I don't no. see it. That's so strange. Um a watch I, lamp never drips, Will. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> a broken lamp. But they did it again. What is that? Is it just is it just dust falling? I, I don't know. That's bugging me. I'm that off that's a shame that's a new that's a brand new lamp i like that lamp too well, um we'll, i don't know what it was we'll have to investigate yeah um but uh anyway yeah so the 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 third half um because you know there's a first a second and a third half yeah um but uh the third portion of the film definitely became bonkers and it definitely became clear that the movie was not going to follow a a a structure that i would say would make it a a good coherent piece of yes. storytelling. Yeah, no, I agree. But that being said, the third half did deliver on a lot of stuff that made it very enjoyable, very funny, and very likable yeah. and very catchy. That overall, that I had to say that I did leave the movie like fe- like enjoying, enjoying, enjoying it. I definitely think like like to get to my like general thoughts. I do think it is a movie of two halves. I do think it's a movie where kind of the more the first half, which has that more Fleming-based book, like more the first half, which is more based on the Fleming book, with again some alterations and some additions, I think is very, very solid. I do think you're right in that the the second half of that first half does get a little bit kind of starts to get in that kind of yeah. direction. And I don't like, even think it's bad. It's just like just structure and no, storytelling yeah, start, wise. Yeah, there's there's a I think there's a clear direction within that first third, like the first act and everything like that. There's a kind of a clear direction that the more they kind of get into the different things that they're doing, it just kind of evolves into a directionless movie in some senses of just like the kind of it's kind of just doesn't have like a point you know it doesn't have a thing that it's going to and then when it does it kind of is like well why are we going to this mm-hmm. more fantasy segment it just kind of seems so different than the beginning right um really a couple things is that of course the music is awesome because it's the shermans and their height mm-hmm. i mean to think about what they were doing again like i just kind of mentioned th- what they were doing about this point like obviously mary poppins is an all-time classic the most of the work that they did in the jungle book is you know obviously still remembered mm-hmm. very well you know, you you know me well. I'm a huge nerd for The Happiest Millionaire, which I think is some of the best Sherman work. It, it, and well, it's, it's good. Just, this it's was, good. It's a good yeah. musical, and everybody should look it up. And then there's this, where it's like, you know, it's I don't know if it's my... It's definitely not among my absolute favorite, like, overall Sherman works, but there's a lot of good energetic stuff here. 
Um, and I think that it's just like that's you know. The Shermans as a musical team always bring a certain type of energy right. uh, to their projects, whether it's in the parks, whether it's, you know, a kind of a slow romantic love song or whether it's there's always a specific like energy. They're always very good with lyrics and their music always pops. And I think like that, if nothing else, even in kind of the second half, which is kind of you're right, kind of off the rails insane, that that the Sherman music kind of keeps that energy going yeah, and keeps yeah. it entertaining. It's the parts that you pay attention to. I do think that there there is elements of a classic in the making here. Um, I do think that kind of there are choices made within that second half. And, oh, if and, there was ever a classic musical, like family friendly musical that could get remade, it, it's this. Yes. Like I, I would actually be a big proponent of like, oh, you should remake this, and yes. then like maybe because the thing about it though is like because I don't remember having necessarily that issue when I saw it on stage, mm-hmm. and I think because on stage you kind of just get swept up in the pageantry of it yes. all. So the fact especially because yeah. I mean we it's a, that that production, especially you saw it in London, yeah, so you saw the original production of it was very famous for its lavishness and its its theatricality, right? Uh, which is something that the American version of that play lacked, mm-hmm. uh, which caused like because the the London version of the play i was gonna get this after my focus down the london version of the musical was like one of the biggest sell like biggest box office musicals of all time in terms of like for broad for west end stayed there for months on end you know made lots of money and then the american version was like in and out within a month and a half because it just didn't have that same appeal but i do agree and i do think that the general i mean like you know you kind of have that kind of that ken adam design and the sherman brothers songs and even though the movie, the plot-wise, kind of gets out all the way, there's still an entertaining aspect of it. But I do agree that this is not some, not something I would oppose being remade. And it's one of those, it's among those movies that I feel like it's so close that you just make a couple little different decisions, and it does get regarded more of the classic musical that maybe uh, sometimes isn't. Well, I, I think the biggest thing, and it's interesting to feel why I wouldn't necessarily have. The structure of this bother me on a on a stage musical, whereas I it, it bumped for me as a film. And I think the reason being is because in the film, there's some quite good filmmaking in the first third of this film. Yeah. There's some good filmmaking. There's some very good storytelling. Um, I think like basically the the way that I saw it, um, not that I'm interpreting it. This is like w- the text of the film, but. Um, they paint this really good image of all of the characters and you get you really invested in what's going on with the characters in this image of like Dick Van Dyke's playing like this this uh, eccentric uh, professor but you you buy that like you know he's kind of like a str- a struggling man who's uh, like trying to care for his kids yeah. and you buy that relationship and in, the, in the movie uh, unlike in the book in the movie he's widowed that he was married and now his wife the wife right, died yeah. um Whereas in the book, he is, you know, the the, the core group is, is a married yeah. couple and they're Yeah, kids. but it was just like everything about like them and then how the mo- how the movie uh, established all the relationships between like. Yeah. For, so first off, like there were three main things that I saw, like the fact that they maintain this like eccentric family relationship with right. like the the professor his his dad the grandfather the grandfather and the kids. who like says he's going to africa and and, and you know alaska he's yeah. going traveling but then he just goes in like the outhouse right but the, likes, but the movie but that's like kind of the the entrancity of the grandfather which you can see clearly reflected on the son right but and but then also at the same time the movie would take the time to have serious conversations where it's like the the, the grandfather being like listen like 
I know like you're you're a crazy inventor and I know that like you don't want to like get like an honest day's job but like you know eventually you, you're we'll still, have to provide yeah you, we're gonna have to provide you're still living in a house with like a with a hole in the roof and things like that and and you and, like you're yeah you can't fix my bedroom but you're making this weird yeah you know Egg and egg and sausage contraption that serves you breakfast. And I thought like what was really good about that was that there's a fine line that you draw in a movie like this where it's like, well, is everybody just too weird and cartoonish? Where it's like, how are these like people like living? Because it's not like really a real world. But like you do buy that uh, that everybody is eccentric but also competent enough whether it be in like oh like competent enough as a grandfather and a family. And you do get the sense that like. Uh, Despite you know Dick Van Dyke playing like this eccentric professor, you get the sense that he's he is working every day. He is trying to provide for his family. He just can't bring himself to like doing like you know going to an office job. Right, and but he, you and do he, buy it. But he, it's one of those things where it's like he has so many ideas that maybe so close to being commercial, but right. like they're just not there. So he's working every day trying to invent these things that you know are are almost there because it's very easy to make this character just come off as like well this guy has two kids and he's like too busy playing with all of his inventions so it's easy to do that but you do get the sense that he is trying right like his hardest every day Get that sherman song uh you know with the kids which again they're very the shermans are very good at portraying emotion through their songs which i think like because people remember kind of the big words and kind of the melodies but i think like the shermans in my favorite work of theirs are are very emotional songwriters. Mm-hmm. When you think about like um, "Man Has His Dream" in Mary Poppins to uh, some of the stuff in "Happiest Millionaire," like uh, "Are We Dancing?" and there are those really kind of bringing those emotions to the forefront. To even like you know kind of all the different elements of Jungle Book, and I think in this movie it very much presents itself that way when they do get the you know the original emotional song. But even just kind of the way that, like, the lightness of, like, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which counteracts, you know, which, which kind of, not counteracts, it um it enhances that relationship that the father has with his kids when they're singing the right, song together. Yeah. I think, like, they, they help bring that out. And I think that's, like, a big strength of having the Shermans on this movie is that they really bring not just the fun out of the songs, but they really bring that emotional side too that, that only enhances what the rest of the movie is doing and with its characters. Let's not undersell uh, Dick Van Dyke too, oh, who, Dick Van, who I mean, is excellent is, in the role. Dick Van Dyke is a star. Like yeah. that's the, the thing is like when you watch him... This made me want to like search out... Like I was like, man, now that I've thought about it, I don't think I've seen enough Dick Van Dyke movies. Like the thing is like, the thing is, like Dick Van Dyke movies, but even like you know the original Dick Van Dyke show, mm-hmm. which is like, you know such a purveyor of comedy yeah. and like such it, it's so influential in the way that sitcoms evolved from the Dick Van Dyke show that's influenced it's still influencing like WandaVision yeah yeah well like, no I mean it, but, it, but, but but that's the thing it's like Van Dick Van Dyke like he just came out on stage at D23 to announce the Mary Poppins ride at Epcot mm-hmm. and like even just in that he's 90 now mm-hmm. he's like 90 and he still has that light step he still has that kind of magic and just seeing him like, like you know, despite the accent, like he's amazing in Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. He's so good with Julie Andrews in that movie, and he's so good with acting with people. Right. Um. Especially like considering like too that he was, and he he self admitted that he was very much like a mess of a human being at this time, but he always brought that professionalism to the stage sure, itself. Sure. Sure. Um. And he also noted that he was very much someone who kind of took control of the set because, uh. 
Ken Hughes as a director would always swear in front of the children, and Van Dyke was like, "Okay, like children, <laughs> like over here, I'll do a little dance for you." Uh, but 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 the thing is, like when you see him in this movie, especially, like you just see why he was so popular and he's a star because the man is is a movement magician. Like just the little bits and pieces that he like, and I, I, I yes, of course, like the dance moves are incredible. Like the Mule Bamboo stuff when he's doing is like crazy good. Some of the best kind of dancing he's ever done in features, and I include Mary Poppins in that too, where he's a great dancer there. But even just with the little gags, the little slapstick stuff that he does with the inventions, and you know, just kind of he he just is a wizard at like knowing the exact right move to make you laugh. Right, and it's yeah. like that's really where a lot of the first half of this movie definitely like finds its humor. It's just Dick Van Dyke just doing the little details, giving you the little details that really make you believe in him and, and and make you enjoy yourself and like he was he's so good at that and the the second thing for me that was really cementing it that really sold that was really just selling me on the movie was that when we introduce our female lead uh, miss scrumptious who yeah. comes in and it was just like a you know this is the definition of how you really develop a character and a meet cute between that and the lead character because it was one of those things where instantly you just bought like the chemistry between the two yeah and then to the point that like when it does evolve into a more romantic relationship like it, for me it was like seamless like from and it was just like i just like that character a lot I, lo- I love how she played the character i think it's a great performance and i do think like obviously you couldn't get julie andrews but i think this is kind of a a next best thing because i think she's really good sally and in the role of truly, I do feel there's some points for me mm-hmm. where it's got that syndrome of character that was added to be the romantic element, at least a little bit later. Where it's just kind of it's oh, kind of, really? See, I didn't get that sense at all. Like, no, I, I got I, I kind of got that a little bit, not not as much as not as much as I think I could have because I do think that the performance adds a lot, mm-hmm. but it kind of was one of those things where kind of you know bouncing around between like. You know, she's helping him at the thing, and then she's angry at him again, and all this sort of kind of stuff, which is like it kind of is it works for the movie, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like all over the place. And then I just feel like there's kind of like a little bit where, and I think it also relates to kind of where the second half of the movie goes, where I just feel like I could have used a little bit more development. But I, I do think that the performance See, adds I, a lot. I, I I had the exact opposite, almost almost completely, like very much on the opposite side of that. I I thought for me it was. I first of all I thought that her performance as the character I just felt like when she came on screen that they brought to the table oh, yeah. a fully fleshed I, I, out I think character. it's a great I mean I, I do say I mean like and I'm not like told like I'm not on the total opposite end I do think yeah. the character kind of works mostly at the end of the day for me it just I said some bumps a little bit more bumps for me but I do think like her introduction is is yeah, amazing well, the, the 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 stuff mm-hmm. with the car is really good and I think that's all that. I, but stuff. see, like this is where I think that I may be on uh, on a different um, path because I think that I think we're both in agreement that the the character itself is fle- is fleshed out to the point of like oh it's like it's it, it, her own individual character that they yeah. bring a good performance to. But I, I don't I didn't get the sense that it was like necessarily like you know they they added the love interest only because I think that they provide the you know her with enough of a not even enough they flesh out that character with her own personality enough and i think story-wise you do need like an adult in the room yeah uh character and it yeah. can't be grandpa because he's, he's another he's crazy, a person. crazy person and so i and i think that that character 
I thought that like she balanced out like because I think that was the thing. It was like the adult in the room, but where it could have gone wrong for me is to have her come in and be like, "What? What is up with all of all of this right, nonsense? Yeah. I can't handle all of your no, craziness. She does, yeah, you need to get. You need to be she a does real kind man, of, right? And she does like kind of." enjoy yourself with the children I yeah think her chemistry with the children is really good you too. well you get the you get the sense that i i got the sense that she is an adult who understands that you have to be an adult but she also shared the same sense of humor and sense of adventure that like the dick van dyke and the kids did yeah and i think that was the key difference for yeah. me that would have it, it could have right. come off as just like oh man like it's yeah, right like, 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 a shrill, like a shrill yeah, yeah she could come off as more shrillish whereas this one she was just like uh the, just that that playful banter between the two because and they clearly do that because when she sees all the inventions you can see that like she oh has, she's clearly she, into she, it she has a, a sense of wonder yeah yeah I, I i do think that it works overall i just think there's a little bit more bumping for me i think mm-hmm. there's a little bit more with the character you could have done within the movie to kind of really bring her whole to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, but I do think, again, it's the performance and those little, again, those little details that do make it kind of yeah. work. And, and then the other thing that was like really, the last thing that was getting me really involved was that I thought that there were some bold storytelling choices in it because you have uh, him uh, doing, uh, discovering toot sweets, which are the uh, sweets that whistle. Yeah. Um, and then you go into, he goes to, uh, Truly's father. Yeah, Truly's father is like the factory, Mr. which Strunches. they call confectionaries in this world, which means like, oh, like that's it's just funny. It's like, oh, that really makes this like, yeah, it just it's such of the era yeah. that it, it was made. And then uh, so they go through the whole big song and dance, and then you're getting all riled up, and you're like, oh man, like everything, like I was like, because I forgot the story. I was like, man, everything's gonna change for this guy. And then you know, there's something happens that ultimately gets resolved by the end of the movie. Right. Well, like but, the, the they have the whistle sweets and and. And basically, like it's it's this kind of big again, very classic Sherman stuff where like everybody just gets like slowly gets involved with the song, and there's like the kind of whistle. All the other employees of this candy factory start whistling along yeah, yeah, with yeah. the sweets, but then all the whistling attracts a bunch of dogs, and then they and then, and then they the dog rush the, the dogs like rush the factory. Which, by the way, while we're speaking of the factory, I did say the one role I want to play in a movie like this is yeah. like the like the doorman or the butler who's all like about the rules yeah, where he's like well, your father has an appointment at two o'clock and he cannot he, it's like we cannot allow any strangers in here and then, and tr- then and truly's like she was like let, let them see my father it's like oh just go into the office and it's like oh but madam that's so, not how the, but the rules yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah but- i like i always love a character like that but so then they come in and then they're back to square one and but and right. i thought that it was good because well, he's also he's also trying to make money the Kind of the point is, uh, the kids uh, hang out with uh, you know they skip school and right. they hang out with Desmond Leland's junk shop owner. Right. It's a very small role in the movie, uh, and they enjoy this one car that they they pretend to drive. But then they reveal like in the in a very like children's fantasy film villainy that there's a guy that's going to to buy it. Right. And right. like he's like you know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to melt it up. I'm going to I'm going to change it fun. into other fun. metal. And then, you you know, it's not even a car anymore. Yeah. And the kids are like, well, we need to save our car. So they, they get Dick Van Dyke to, um, you know, they, they try to, like, we need the money and it's 30 shillings and he just doesn't have the money mm-hmm. because he's, you know, he doesn't, he can't sell his inventions. He doesn't want to, you know, go to work. So he tries you know, the, the whistle sweets. Right. Um, oh, but the, the thing I was going to say about that was like, but it was good because it did two things. It kept me on my toes story-wise because it's like, oh, it subverted like my expectations of where this was going to yeah. go. But then it also um, 
showed competency like it showed that like oh right this was going to work to some degree but it's yeah. more of just like oh like you know life shit happens type mm-hmm. of deal so and it just kept me getting like more and more invested in the story between like I was so invested in Dick Van Dyke and how he was going to end up providing for his kids and then like and then oh like you know it, it, are him and scrumptious going to get together like I was so into this that then the issue yes with the movie the issue with the movie and and I don't think it's a it's not a crippling issue it just keeps it from being a good it's, whole piece it's definitely an issue that like I feel like could it, it is to me it's an issue that like could make or break a movie for you like not for us yeah because I think that we can just enjoy it in the pieces that it is but right. I do feel like a, like another yeah I mean if we're part. talking about like a succinct narrative like yes. this is where the the, the movie, movie kind of goes yeah and it kind of uh, fails I, in that I will regard. say again I, I mentioned this before before we get to where we're going yeah um, but I do really like I think my favorite part of the movie just the one that speaks to me most as like a Sherman fan as a Dick Van Dyke fan, even as a kind of a general Disney film fan is like the fairground slash me old bamboo sequence. Cause that's like really like, this is musical. Like this is musical. Like, yes, like drugs to me where yeah. it's like the crazy dance, the, the Sherman's again, playing with language, which is, I could do a whole podcast. Episode I, of- love that but at the same time it was the first sense that i got of like all right where are we going yeah, with this narrative i think it's fair yeah but i also think that this is just like this is what's that's just stuff that speaks to me as a musical right but it's but like again what, but the, the, the movie it's a great sherman song it's a great van dyke dance it's just a great kind of fun sequence and I, but i think that's what kind of keeps the movie afloat in in the way that chitty chitty bang bang the car yes. does is that the the film is littered with that kind of stuff throughout that keeps at least it kept me it keep, engaged even even with the structural issues which we're yeah. about to well, get no, to but that's what i'm saying as like a narrative and a story this is where it starts you know really it, faltering yeah it's, it starts faltering and essentially there's not too much else to say other than then it becomes a full-on fantasy adventure uh, gotta like rescue yeah. from the bad guys. So eventually, uh, because of the the he gets a lot of tips from the you know doing the old bamboo uh, sequence, and uh, he basically can buy the car. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole thing of him fixing the car, fixing the car, fixing the car. Finally, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is born. We get the famous title song uh, of the movie, uh, which you just heard uh, in the quote. And then they decide to go to the beach. Um, with truly and you know and and they're basically like having a good time together and then dick van dyke starts telling the story about you know the vulgarian pirates essentially yeah, yeah yeah and then this is where we get into the hard fantasy sequence of this where there is a group from another country of vulgaria led by the baron which is played by gert fro uh who want to steal chitty chitty bang bang uh and and unlock its magical secrets for right themselves. right yeah uh so we basically like the you know they we we see him get attacked and then the car starts flying um and what well, basically like it falls off a cliff and we're like oh no what's going to happen we cut the intermission yeah that was funny um and then we get to see the car fly off mm. uh and we land in Bulgaria where all children are banned mm-hmm. and um and then also the grandfather gets kidnapped oh, that, that's the thing cuz yeah. the grandfather so we have these two well, Nin- I don't like it's it's fine. Like there's these two these, nincompoops. Yeah, there's these two bumbling like buffoons that go after them and they think the grandfather is Dick Van Dyke, so they capture him instead. They think the, they think the grandpa is the professor. Yeah, he has a so, song where he's like he's initially into it because he's like, I'm finally traveling, I'm finally living the posh lifestyle, right. but then he's like 
you know, taken in. He's like, you got to make a flying car. And he's like, I they can't do that. That's impossible. Right. And then he has like a little dancing number with, uh, um, with the, um, with the other scientists that the yeah. Bulgarian is like, Baron, Hey, it's okay. To fail. But, you, but here's the thing. So they go into this big fantasy adventure land yeah. where they are going to, uh, where you're right. Like children are banned, which is like, you know, uh, and it's like, and they're banned. It's caught, it's caught off by intermission and continues afterwards. Right. And they're banned in a way in which like all the children live like rats under in the sewers. And they're like, the, they're like, we finally got food and they're like yeah. throwing it. And then, and then which the movie becomes like a weird world war two like, yeah. allegory. Cause, cause like, there's <laughs> like, there's the child catcher. Yeah. Uh, and he's basically like sniffing out children. He's Christoph Waltz from the beginning. He, of the he literally bastard. is Christoph Waltz from like the, like we were joking about Christoph Waltz. So yeah. Up, but like the child catcher is literally the he's same like, character as Christoph they Waltz. Literally, it's, but instead of trying to catch Jews, he's trying to catch children. He come, they come in with the kids, and then he's like, "Listen, you have to hide. Hide under the floor." Benny Hill like, as yeah, a toy maker. Yeah. He and then they they, he, they literally have to hide under the floorboards. I'm like, this is very strange. Right. And and then the child catcher says, "Like I can smell and children." It, and it only becomes not weird when there's because then the child catcher is like, "All right, now he's luring children in with." Andy. So I'm like, this is very weird, and it's only saved because there's that funny gag of like the the candy the ca- the candy truck yeah. like falls apart and, and it's, it's like a giant chills. cage. Yeah, like so that was funny. But here's here's like the blanket thing I'll say because there were things that I did enjoy oh, about yeah. the rest of the movie. I liked the Baron and the Baroness. I thought that like, which was funny because that was another Ian Fleming thing. Like I did like that in Ian Fleming's history, there was like he's always trying to escape his wife, yeah. and then there's a plot line in here where like the Baron is like always trying to kill. I will his say wife. about the Baron that was really funny. I was hella impressed by Gert Frobe's performance as yes. the Baron. Yeah, he was like good. The, to imagine this was the same guy who just played Goldfinger like four years before this, mm-hmm. it's like he's light on his feet. He he just feels like a completely different person. Mm-hmm. And like And there and there and there's also like because it's it, all dem it's a lot of it's demonstrated in that the the musical performance between him and the Baroness. Right, where he's trying to like, yeah, he's trying to do all these ways of killing her, and yeah. it was so funny, and it was so entertaining, and there, there were like, and I do oh, like this is a funny movie, by the way. It is funny, yes. Yeah. Uh, again, like you just have great performances, but I just, I just wanted to shout out Gert because, mm-hmm. like, just to see him like do something completely different just kind of blew me away. But the the biggest thing, and this is like kind of like the nutshell of the like, where the problem with the movie is that y- they got me so invested and was and. Were, was telling the story about Dick Van Dyke and Miss Scrumptious and like the kids, and they got so invested in that that by the time you get to this third, there are just stretches of time period that have nothing to do with any of that. Yeah. So the movie ultimately loses, or I should say, reprioritizes what its focuses right. are. And then so it, you you can't like if you're going to make a whimsical tale about you make a car and they go on a big adventure. You can do that, but you can't spend the whole first third or maybe half of your movie getting me invested in this story about this inventor trying to provide for his kids, but he can't quite make it, and like you know the trials and tribulations of that, and then just take a hard turn into this series of different essentially fantasy skits, and that's ultimately what the problem is. Considering this, where this is like again a big good forty minutes to an hour of this fantasy sequence. Yeah, right? we come out of the intermission and the whole rest. By of the way, this is almost a two and a half hour movie. It is a long movie. Yeah, it's a long movie. But like you get like another hour of like you know all the stuff with the Baron, the Baroness, and they're trying to like steal the car, and then they're they're there's a lot going on where they're like you know trying to kidnap children and trying to you know steal this flying car and you know all this sort of stuff. 
and then to just reveal again and and emphasize that that was just all a fantasy. Oh yeah, we didn't even mention that. So like so, but this is like that. The- that basically. Uh, goes the way you think it goes where it's like you know then they have to then the kids get kidnapped so then they rescue the kids and the grandfather actually the biggest problem with it is that they came there for the grandfather and then when they rescue the grandfather i kind of forgot that that happened yeah so then they escape and they fly off they sing chitty chitty bang bang and then it goes back and then he's like the beach again yeah to the beach again and dick van dyke's like and then they flew off into the and they had rescued the grandfather and all the kids of bulgaria were free to roam so you and i were just like Wait a minute. So, like, essentially, like, the last hour-plus movie was all a fantasy. It's very much like, again, most of my listener base, I'm assuming, has seen or have knowledge of Mary Poppins. It's essentially like you get to, like, halfway through that movie, and they go in the chalk painting. And then that's the rest of the movie. And that's the rest of the movie. Yeah, you said that, and I thought, like, that's the best description of this. Because, like, well, in in that movie, you know, it's, like, the chalk sequence is, like, 10 to 15 minutes. They have, like, Jolly Holiday. They do the date, and then they do the horse race to Supercalifragilistic. But then, you know, it moves back on to, you know... The main plot of the the, movie, which is the Banks family. The Banks family. Yeah. My thing about it, though, is, like, I, it's one of those things where it's just it just makes it hard because just to me as an audience member, like I get it's like it's kind of weird and bold and there is an element of like I kind of like that, but I'm also like so we just spent the last hour of the movie looking at things that did not happen to these characters, right? And then you know, and then it's just kind of the then like it's also like it's not even like there's more movie after that. Basically, the movie wraps up very quickly after that. I'm or, I'm willing to be more lenient about that yeah. though because it's like we are watching like a, a and I'm not to, not to diminish it, but if I'm watching like this whimsical family friendly yeah. musical like like children's film, I, I'm willing to at least let it slide that yeah. I can accept the fantasy storytelling as the character development in the movie I proper. Think, like the thing is like I, I, I'm willing I, to I let do that think go. that's a fair assessment mm-hmm. but my thing is just like especially just spending so long on No, it, that is a problem. Like it, it's it's very long. I, I, Especially I, like because this, the first had, half of that movie is so different. That's the thing too is like if it was more my thing was like either you commit to that fantastical element a little bit more and just like make that a part of the movie, like overall, or you just make it a segment and then you just have more stuff throughout the movie. Because right. it's just like to me, it's just like having it for so long in a movie that sometimes feels like it is too long mm-hmm. um, and definitely could be streamlined a little bit. Yes. I do think that like it just kind of waits on you when you just like it's just like to me i was just like my immediate reaction is like so wait what did any of that really matter did was that character felt like it just like kind of just, just took me out of it a little bit more where i think for me it was just more of just like a narrative and pacing it, thing. it's just like it's just it's just a really odd choice yeah i think that if you did the same storytelling device but you did what i said where if you just can maintain focus yeah. on character right, no, yeah but then I, it would have been different for me i agree so my I agree. issue is more of like they they it's tell the like, story about the family and then the it, it next half of the movie is not about the family right yeah so and, that's my right because then it's again it gets into the world world two stuff and and the allegory about the children and now we're saving children and is like whatever yeah because I, I just feel like you know you either like again if you it even even something where like if you make it like the chalk sequence where it's like you know a, a decent chunk but not the rest of the movie just you could just add more stuff that actually does kind of affect the characters and kind of a little more of a plot because again like you have this 40 minute thing where like you do get some like character stuff going on but then again like you just kind of oh yeah that's you know and they're all saved and we let's go home and then you know things wrap themselves up like mm-hmm. very quickly after that like it's not like there's real big dramatic stuff it's basically like the rest of the movie is just like go home 
you know, Dick Van Dyke's like, well, I can't marry you truly because I'm poor and you're rich. And then he goes back to his house and, and Mr. Um, Mr. Mr. Scrumptious, Scrumptious is yeah. like, we're going to make your, your whistled dog treats. Right. And he's like, well, I'm rich now. Let's go back to truly and have a great time. Yeah. Right, and right. it's like that, but that's like really it. And it's just like, you spent so much time on that fantasy sequence that it's just like, it just, you just lose something. No, I agree. It. I, you just it's, lose yeah, something it within work. the momentum of those characters and the momentum of their arcs. Yeah. Because it's also like, now, like, I, again, this is me in my See, head, but, but, but I'm yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. now it's like, like, well, this whole thing was just like really took place over the course of like, you know, five in time minutes. And then the whole rest of the movie happens. Cause like, I do feel like the movie kind of like gets into like, you know, more of that stuff, especially with the, when truly and Dick Van Dyke are, are disguised as puppets and, and dolls. And I think that, you know, the counter melody really works for that. But that see, was, like the movie was still filled with things like that that kept me enjoying no, it. It keeps it up, but I just feel like there's a bit in this movie where they have to go in disguise and Scrumptious is like a is a wind up doll and he's like a dancing puppet. Yeah. And through that scene, it's basically. But again, that's where I thought the good storytelling came in because it's like through that scene, it's like oh, like a, kind of like a set piecey scene, but also this is the scene where he's like in like finding out that like oh he likes this girl yeah. and everything. I guess that, like, that all works. I think it a little bit more metaphorically works, but I just think it's just like so much time spent on it. Like, there's just other ways this movie could have gone that I think it like, derails the narrative. It of derails the, movie, the narrative, definitely. and I feel like it, there are other ways this movie could have gone where um, that character stuff is more on the forefront as right. opposed to being part of this fantasy sequence that you know you realize he doesn't really exist and, and all that sort of stuff. To me, that's kind of no, where I felt. I, I, but, I agree. but like I said, like the music is still very enjoyable. There's still some great humor. You're you're, you're exactly right. Like some of the Gert Frobe stuff with the Baroness. Um, is very funny and and it just like what saves the movie because that's also a thing where if the movie is not funny or doesn't have good music that completely derail like that completely just sure no takes I it agree out, takes I it agree. out and the thing that the thing that keeps the movie afloat is those Sherman songs because they're so good at what they do mm-hmm. and just kind of the little bits and humor that you get throughout the movie um that kind of keeps it like it keeps it from falling apart completely and I think like. Another version of this, I, another version of this, which is more focused, could be much better and an all-time, true all-time classic. But there's also the version of that movie where, without those songs, without those moments, that the movie just completely falls apart. Yeah, and um, and we gotta start wrapping up. But okay. um, the uh, but my final words on it would be: I walked away thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, I thought that the again, I thought the first, I would, I would maybe give it the first half. I think the first half is legitimately excellent. Yeah. Um, and I think that the you're right, the music work, I think the filmmaking, the storytelling is actually really solid in that first uh, in that first half. And I think the thing that is consistent through the entire half uh, through the entire film is just the entire commitment of the cast and the music and the imagination and the craft of it all just creates a thoroughly enjoyable um, because I could see like if you're a kid and you get to the end and all the kids are like overthrowing the Baron, yeah. you can't help but like kind of like smile to yourself a little bit and you're like, oh, this is good like fun fan like this yeah. is good family fun. And at the end of the day, I just I, I found myself just really even just like humming along to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, even though it was some of it was ridiculous and narratively some of it didn't work. You know when the kids are uh, storming the castle? Uh-huh. Uh, Phil Collins claims he was one of those kids. Oh, really? <laughs> but he said he was completely cut out of the movie because he had a sinus sinus bandage on him, and they didn't want that. Oh, that's kids. funny. But he, but, but he uh, says like, yeah, I was one of the kids at the end of uh, with the, with the, well, the Vulgarian kids. Uh-huh. 
Um, but ultimately, at, at the end of the day, like you know, I, I was real. I was really happy that that we watched this. We watched this. It's definitely fun, and I, I don't yeah. think like this is honestly if, like something that is not. It's it's not worthy of skipping. Like if yeah. you are interested, like I said, like you know you're going in for a long movie and know that there's some you know there's some structural and narrative kind of bumps along the way. But overall, I mean, it's just it's a really fun time. Some great music, and, and, and you some, can. And, and it's interesting that we talked about Ian Fleming because this is the last thing I wanted to say was that you see those like I've already said like some even though like the, that was something added for this movie. It's just kind of funny that like the whole we like, talk wife thing. It, yeah. But like, the, but there's other things about it where it's like obviously like there's the more whimsical version of like having the supercar. But like even the smaller things of like you know. It's funny to hear that Ian Fleming was a guy who wanted some of that notoriety and wanted a more exciting life and didn't want to just like, right. do what every guy was doing. And that's what the main character of, of the piece is doing. And, and, and that, I think it's also, like I said, like something that's committing to his, his biological son. Yeah. And I think the love that like, you know, that Dick Van Dyke shows to the kids, I think, is, is Fleming in his writing way, expressing that love to yeah. his son, which is the one thing in his real life that's kind of keeping his marriage together is his love for Casper, who yeah. is his son. So that was all good. And uh, the last thing I'll say is uh, make more movies like this. Well, I, want, I want the I want the family-friendly musical to come back. what about Harrison Ford? Oh, yeah. What about... what about? Wait, is there an aftermath? Do we have an aftermath? We do. We have a main one. Okay. Um, Harrison Ford. I, I was thinking about that. Who is... Who is Harrison Ford? No, you know what, Harry? So there is a um, – he is some sort of rich um, uh, race car driving tycoon that's at the beginning of the oh, movie. Oh, right, because the beginning of the movie, which is also just added for the movie, is basically implies that that the – like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang before he became this – desolate car mm-hmm. in in a junkyard was like this auto racing champion basically yeah. like what he basically won all these races until he like had to like they had to swear to avoid a girl and a dog and the, and the car blew up but yeah. yeah so he's an auto he he's if it's young harrison ford he's one of the race car drivers if it's old harrison ford he is like maybe the guy who was sponsoring yeah. that guy and he's like get rid of that car that's good i mean yeah. I, I thought like he's like the person in charge of the fun fair where like, that's a good one that's too a good one too or He's like he's like the leader of the neighboring country to Bulgaria, mm-hmm. who's like planning his own like we gotta save those kids <laughs> before Dick Van Dyke gets right, in there. Right. Right. So anyway, all right. So uh, so brief aftermath. Um, basically, uh, the movie comes out in 1968, um, and is a moderate success. Um, it was top ten in the USA that year, um, but didn't hit hot real hot in Europe and basically was like, it did well enough more. So it didn't like flop, but did fine. Mm-hmm. Um, reviews at the time were, were mixed. Um, some people thought it was over and basically what kind of things you said, it overindulged on that fantasy in the second half movie was too long. Uh, it is actually a movie that has kind of gone up in ranks uh, over the years. And now it is kind of regarded as with worth. It's definitely worth seeing for the performances and the music. And uh, despite it's one of those things where, People will acknowledge its flaws, but still kind of find the classicness of it. Mm. Uh, it was turned into a major West End musical that didn't, again, didn't on the opposite uh, to the film, which it did very successful in London. Was like the car itself in the musical in the stage musical was like the most expensive musical prop ever. It was like almost a million dollar prop, about seventy five, um, uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars prop. Once it came to America, it didn't do too well. Uh, but it does have that legacy of, you know, it's like the one, you know, before Disney died, it was the one 
you know, Sherman project that the Disney did outside the Disney studio. Dick Van Dyke did get into some hot water during the press run of this movie though, when he said that this movie was going to out Disney, Disney, <laughs> which, which, which the studio took, you know, one of those things where the Disney studio one thought there was just, basically shit talking for shit talking's sake right, right and also the fact that walt had just died it felt like it was out of oh, place oh yeah yeah, yeah. Like, that's no good in this area so yeah. dyke vic dick van dyke was very much blacklisted from returning to the disney studio for a while but then eventually got jesus in case uh just well, that studio was also run weirdly in the 70s so i'm mm-hmm. not gonna deny him that um but that's basically that's basically it and yeah. it, it, it's kind of also you know people don't really know that this is a fleming work um, much more so than the bonds but this is one that's kind of one of the weird facts about it that's like yeah this is kind of the one major work that fleming wrote that was not part of his bond canon well nick i um i think that once we get our jet jaguar movie made then we uh, put our resources into making a full-on like fleshed out, solid, truly classic version. Truly, chitty, ch- truly, chitty, chitty, bang, a bang. truly scrumptious version. Yes, exactly. I mean, and listen, like we've already seen them do it, and you know, because we basically this came out of the original Chitty Chitty Bang Bang came out of Mary Poppins the movie. Like you know, it will follow Chitty s- Chitty Bang Bang returns. Yeah, it will. It will be Chitty Chitty Bang Bang returns. Because I honestly was watching it. I'm just like, yep, that could be Lin Manuel. She could be Emily Blunt. Like yeah. th- this could all work. Like <laughs> it, 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 it fits like a glove. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I was very glad that we that we watched yeah, it was this. A good time to yeah, get. Uh, and it, it's and you know this was you know with the last two films with this and Darby O'Gill, I think we've really kind of like gone an era that's a real breath of fresh air. Yeah. Uh, with all of the movies, both Bond and Godzilla, that yeah. we're talking about. So, Do you, so wait, are you, are we going? Because if we're not going to say what our next movie episode is, we can say what our next deep dive is. Because I, I think do, the I next do, deep dive is. Very much related to what yeah, we were talking about today. Yeah, we can talk today. about the deep dive, but I do know what my next episode okay, is. Okay, so real quick, uh, so our next episode on the deep dive, which will be our Bond deep dive, yeah. we will ex- be expanding a lot more on Fleming's uh, book career, and yes. we're going to be talking about the transition of the Fleming books into the movies and the legacy of the Fleming yeah. literary works. Right. So I think that's going to be, be a very interesting deep Good dive. companion piece to, to this episode. But yeah. what is it? Because I don't know what our next yeah, uh, movie so, is going to be. Uh, we're going we're gonna to step away from the children's fantasy for a little bit will and uh, you know next month is october yes you know october has a lot of costumes yeah and i'm thinking you know there's one guy that really likes to wear costumes oh and that oh are, are you are you saying that we're about to have a groovy october i think so oh no we're gonna take a look at the uh, magnum opus of one mike myers oh yes in uh, austin powers international man of mystery we're gonna look at the first austin powers movie finally yes absolutely i cannot wait I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, but next episode is not a James Bond episode. It is a Godzilla episode in which we will be following up uh, to the Millennium Era's first sequel, first direct sequel uh, within uh, its era as we get into the return of Mecha Godzilla, a.k.a. Yeah. Kiryu in Godzilla Tokyo. SOS. Mm, I'm very looking forward to more Mechagodzilla. Um, but uh, yep, so I think uh, that is it. If you also want to go back, you can listen to our last Bond deep dive in which we talk about, or uh, Godzilla deep dive in which we talk about the thematic evolution. Or the last Bond deep dive where we talk about the villains of the Bond franchise. Or the last Godzilla deep dive before that in which we talk about Toho. Or the last James Bond deep dive. We talk about the ladies. We talk about the ladies. And so on and so forth. All right, we're done. I'm done. You're done. Plug us out. All right, uh, this is the plugs. Uh, you can listen to us at Bonzilla Pod, uh, SoundCloud. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, you cannot. I was about to say you can listen to us at bonzillapod at gmail.com, but you cannot do that. Yeah. You can listen to us at uh, soundcloud.com slash bonzilla007 or link us on iTunes. 
Uh, you can email us at bonzillapod at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, Twitter or Facebook.com slash bonzilla007. All right. Well, well, I, you know, I think this would also be a nice time to listen to some more music. How does the how does the song go? How does it, bang, it, bang, no, 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 no. The sound, the sound uh, goes. It's like. Yeah. All right. Take us out. Yeah.